0: So, John, I wanted to ask, like, how well, how well can you hear them with the things in? Oh, my gosh, I nearly, at one point, so, one, I got to come in in the middle of Cornerstone. I nearly told you, like, pull your, that was, that was beautiful. Like, thank you for the gift of me getting, I, I was talking to somebody in the back, came in during Cornerstone, and man, that was powerful stuff. So, thank you for that. Thank you for um, uh, engaging in worship in a new place in a new way today. Uh, together that was that was great um, hey, so one of my uh, great joys, one of my greatest joys in life is the opportunity to try to bring scripture to life for people. Um, I, think, I think many of us were raised with this idea of scripture being this um, uh, essentially the Bible 's like a textbook or something that you just kind of read it and you read a couple of chapters or a couple of verses or whatever, and you just kind of check it off and and we read it as though it 's being um, read in that Bueller Bueller monotone you know all the way through and and, and instead of like really embracing the richness of these passages and picturing them in our mind. So um, I'm going I'm to read through the passage we're going to look at today. And I want to encourage you to start the process of, of picturing it, seeing it in your mind's eye. Um, there's actually a term for this in the Orthodox Church that they specifically practice praying through picturing um what go what's going on in the scriptural passages and so um i want i want us to do that with this day and then I'm going to try to bring it even more to life for us the the people involved here so um so if you have got your bible turn over to John chapter 4 you can scroll you can s- turn the pages or whatever it is that you do to get to John chapter 4 but um in John chapter 4 now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples he left judea And departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink," for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria?" For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Um, I want to try to help you as you're picturing this passage being lived out. Um, if you've been in church, especially if you've been in church kind of your whole life, you've certainly heard this passage taught. It's one of the most teachable passages in the New Testament, there's so much here to teach and so much fun stuff to engage with and, and so much context to wrestle through, um, but maybe you've never pictured it or never pictured it as, as accurately as we could. Um, so one, I want you to imagine this Middle Eastern woman. I'm going to tell the story a little bit from her perspective. So I want you to picture this Middle Eastern woman. So the first thing that as Americans we have to do is is to not picture people as American. That's the first thing that's tough for us. Um, Those of us who are a little more historically minded can reach all the way back and picture people as British. But that's about the best we can do, right? Um, They all have British accents in the Bible. We all know that from the Bible movies. And so um, this is a, but instead, no, picture a Middle Eastern woman. A woman with olive skin, very dark skin, very dark black hair. Um, the facial structures that are typical for middle eastern people so and and here's even what may be most shocking to you because if you've ever seen an art art rendition a rendition of, of an artistic rendition of the woman of the will she's always pictured as young and beautiful in the prime of her life but that can't be right and we're going to find out she's been married five times and is living with a sixth man and she lives in the desert this is, this is, the desert is, is famous. There's really no such thing as middle age in the desert. You're young, and then you're old. Um, there's nothing in between. And an old hits pretty early, especially if you can imagine back in this day when you had to walk to get your water in the desert. It's hard to keep your, your skin nice and fresh when you have to walk through the sun just to get a few gallons of water at a time. Instead, we should picture an older woman on the downhill end of what we might call middle age, at a minimum, and this may be a surprise to you, you should picture her as older than Jesus. Um, Jesus is in his early 30s at this point, and there's almost no way to do the math that has a woman who's been married five times and is with her sixth man to be younger than th- mid-30s, and probably more likely mid-40s, because she would have to start young, and even if she averaged five years per marriage, she's definitely past Jesus' We should also see her as a survivor of multiple bad relationships. If you know anybody, so in, ca- in the counseling world, we have these things called survival rules that we talk people through, that things we learn to get us through life, and people who face extremely hard lives, um, they manage to survive because they are survivors. That is the, that's the, the character trait they developed, is the ability to survive no matter what. But that often ca- it comes at a cost at a lot of other things. Some of you are probably survivors, You've managed to make it to adulthood by sheer dent of will alone, by making rules and guidelines for life that allow you to get here with any level of success at all. We don't know her name, but the Orthodox name for her is Fatina. That's the name that the Catholics in the Orthodox Church gave to her many centuries ago. Um, there'd be no way to know that from Scripture. Um, maybe somehow legend passed down correctly with that name, although there's no reason to put any confidence in that. For those of you who, who don't have as much imagination and are having a hard time picturing her, maybe um, Dwayne can... This is the, the picture that I was struck with when I looked through Scripture. When I looked through Scripture. YouTube. Sorry, two totally different things. <laughs> Google um, Google for pictures, and I think that's probably closer to what we're dealing with with the woman at the well. An older woman who's been in the desert a long time. Fatina was weary, and she wasn't young anymore, and it was hot. But what did she expect? It was the desert. Was it the Jezreel Valley, lush and green with water flowing through it? No. This was the Samaritan Desert, not far from Shechem. I think you have a picture. That's the lush part of Samaria. And the desert part of Samaria looks like that. The, woman she, the man that she lived with was awful. But again, what did she expect? She wasn't exactly a catch. Five, five husbands later and a herd of children... Maybe, or maybe the reason she'd had five husbands is because she had no children and they had divorced her for lack of bearing them a child. Regardless, he was exactly what she had been looking for, which was better than nothing. But even that, she wasn't sure was true either. Of course, everyone in the family was thirsty. They were all dirty, but none of them were coming to get water, to cook or bathe or wash clothes. No, just Fatina was. And it was worse here in the heat of the day. There is no shade Had she mentioned hot? At the sixth hour, the sun was straight above, cooking everything below it. But there was no way she was going to go in the morning again or in the evening again when the other women went. She wasn't going to face the looks and the whispered comments. And those were the polite ones. Some of the women just spoke their minds out loud or turned their children away from her. At every turn, she was a failure. But she had survived. She was a rejected person of a marginalized gender from a rejected race in the midst of a culture that rejected them. She was unloved, undesired, and if not for this man she was living with, she would be all alone. And most of the time it was just easier to be alone, away from the other women, away from men in her life. It was just easier to avoid everybody. And that's why she's at the well at noon. Trudging through the sand to a well side at the time of day when she could be absolutely sure not to be interrupted are not to be confronted by anybody else. And as she arrived at the well site, she was stunned to find a man sitting on the edge of the well. Here we have wells that are dug in the Middle East, um, especially ancient ones were dug pretty much straight down. We know that this, the well of Jacob still exists. You can go visit it today. It's um, Probably the same one or very close to it, a well that goes down 75 to 100 feet. It's a deep one. And they either would dig way down and then wall up, going up to keep sand and stuff out of the water, or if it was hard enough dirt, they would just dig down, but they would put a, a little ledge around the top of a, the well head. You probably, if you never thought about this, why do people do that? Why do we stack stones up around a well? Well, it's to keep people and animals and and sand and dirt and things like that from, from go, falling down into it and spoiling the water down at the bottom. So that's why there's a a little stone ledge there. And so Jesus was sitting, almost certainly the passage would indicate, was sitting on that stone ledge um, above the well. When she got, what was she going to do now? So she had walked all this way, so she pulled off her water skin bag and perhaps even her own rope. When she got close enough to see his clothes, she could see that this was not just a man, it was a Jewish man and a religious one, maybe even a rabbi. He was totally still with his eyes closed. As she drew near, it seemed like his breathing was too rhythmic, like he was asleep. He was caked from head to toe in dust. And as she arrived at the actual well, his eyes slowly opened. As she was drawing the water out, he sat in total silence, watching her through dust-caked eyelids until she was almost finished. She wasn't surprised he didn't speak. Of course he wouldn't speak to her. She was a, she, she, would she speak to her as a Samaritan woman? Not likely. A Samaritan man would probably not even speak to her, especially not one who was a religious holy man. So a Jew, a rabbi, of course he's not going to speak to her, though he sits just a few feet from her. But then he slowly formed a weary smile, and in a dusty voice the strange strange Jew spoke, give me some water. So to understand the relationship that's here, you need to understand a little bit about the Jews and Samaritans, and you probably, if you've grown up in church, you've certainly heard about the relationship between them. Um, Although you may not know a lot of the details. Um, One, the Assyrians, 700 years before this, the Assyrians who had conquered this land, um, when you had empires like this conquering people, they would go conquer, and then what they would do is they would take people groups out of those, and they would spread them out. So they conquered multiple nations. So what they would do is they would do this kind of forced uh, relocation of people. And so you would have a group of people who would be told that they have to go resettle here, or resettle here, or resettle here. So the Jews see it. We see it in the book of Daniel. That's what's happening in the book of Daniel. Is that they're taking some of the best and brightest and moving them to Babylon, and they moved people all over the place. So this is what empires did back then. So 700 years before Christ, um, the, the Assyrians had brought other races to Israel and had settled them in the middle part of Israel in Samaria. So these were now, 700 years later. I remember, people of the Middle East have long memories. They've been around a long, long time over there. And so um, 700 years later, the Samaritans were still considered mixed breed. They weren't pure Jews. And so you already have that going against them. That's almost a millennia old, and yet still this was something held against them. But there was much more that was held against them that was more important. One is a religious difference. There's a big religious difference. The Samaritans and the Jews, they both worship Yahweh. They both worship Him by sacrificing animals. They both try to follow the Levitical law. But they have one major disagreement, and the major disagreement is... The Jews say that Abraham took Isaac up onto Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And, of course, then God did not let him sacrifice his son. He told him to do so. When he gets there, he says, no, no, I was, this was a test for you. I have provided a different sacrifice. That happened on Mount Moriah, what we call Mount Zion, where the modern-day Temple Mount is. Now there, is, um, there are Muslim construction built on that Temple Mount. That's there. That's there. The Samaritans say that that story took place at Mount Gerizim, not Mount Moriah. That that story took place at Mount Gerizim, which happens to be, you guessed it, in Samaria. When you go now to Israel, you will discover there are three or four, for example, Mount of Transfigurations. And not surprisingly, people tend to defend the one that's in their hometown. You need to come visit their hometown and spend your Western money in their hometown because they have the Mount of Transfiguration there. No, really ours is the real one. And then, but there's, they say theirs is the real one. It makes it—it's challenging at times. They argued that this is where people actually should be worshiping God. To this day, by the way, devout Samaritans still worship Yahweh by sacrificing animals on Mount Gerizim. To this day. But this had gotten ugly in the few hundred years before Jesus came to Earth. Um, it seems that the Samaritans had allied themselves with the enemies of the Jews during the Maccabean Wars. The Maccabean Wars are something that the Jews took very seriously. They created a whole new feast because of it. This is the Maccabean uh, Wars where the, the Greeks and the fought with the Jews. And, and so it turns out that the Samaritans apparently sided with the Greeks in this battle, in this series of battles, and that was a bad thing. Obviously, they took that seriously. So at some point, the Jews went and destroyed the Samaritan Temple on Mount Gerizim to punish them. Just a few years before Jesus' before Jesus's birth, at about the time of Jesus' birth, some Samaritan vandals had broken into the temple at Mount Moriah and had scattered human bones all over the temple in an effort to, to make it uh, where the Jews couldn't worship there. That's at Jesus's birth, about the time of Jesus' birth, this was a fresh ongoing conflict between these people who hated each other. So when Jesus sits down, he's sitting there, and she comes walking up, And he begins to talk to her. It's no surprise that she's surprised. He he should hate her. At best, he should ignore her. Now, we don't really know if her her name was Fatima, but Fatima means light bringer. And over the next couple of weeks, as we look at her life, we're going to see why that name is fitting for her. According to legend, there's no way to know this for sure, but according to legend, Nero had her arrested as a Christian and executed by throwing her down an empty well. Now, that preaches awfully uh, effectively, which makes it open to suspicion that of all people to be thrown down an empty well, this woman would be. However, also Nero was pretty creative. It may be that very much so that Nero knew her story and knowing her story, thought this would be an ironic way to kill her. So we don't really know what happened with um, the lady at the well, but we get to see her encounter here and we get to learn from it. So let's go back catch up to this location. Now, when Jesus learned, verse 4, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. I Take a breath there. Um, Don't you love John? So, John, uh, I mean, yes, John Redfern, but I'm talking about or whatever John, you know. I'm talking about John here. And here we have John writing, and John loves to comment on his own writing. It happens enough that some people think that John's disciples are who wrote the book of John, or who came back in and added in parentheticals to explain stuff to us. But here we... So John's constantly tripping over himself which i get i've tried to be a writer and when i write i have such a nasty habit of going like oh i need to comment on that oh you know what i ought to comment on. it's the same way i teach you, you've, you've caught me doing that but i will go like oh i need to comment on that and so he puts in these parentheses oh yeah you don't want to miss on this so I, it actually wasn't jesus doing all the baptizing it was his disciples w- why do we need to know that i have no idea neither does anybody else everybody guesses at it why why would this be important was he trying to get Jesus off the hook somehow? Like, no, no, Jesus wasn't doing all that much baptizing. I don't see how that gets him off the hook of anything. It may just be pragmatics. I mean, it was fun to read the commentaries on this because everybody had a very strong and yet different opinion on why Jesus wasn't the one doing the baptizing. <coughs> one, one argument was that you can imagine if you 've got 13 kind of lines waiting to get baptized, right you've got the twelve apostles and Jesus, and they're all baptizing people in the Jordan River or something like that that I mean, Nathaniel's line would have been really short, because Jesus, everybody's like, I'm, no, I'm going to get baptized by Jesus. I don't want to get baptized by Nathaniel. That Judas guy seems a little shady to me. I'm definitely not going to be baptized by him. I don't know what's going on with Judas. That would have been really embarrassing later on to be like, yes, baptized by Judas. I was baptized by Judas. Um, but but I, we don't know. I mean, that was actually one of the commentary's opinion was it was just flat pragmatics. It could easily be that Jesus was too busy teaching and healing and doing that kind of stuff to be baptized. Like, so he was teaching the crowds as people were coming down the line, and probably hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people were coming to be baptized. And so Jesus was teaching and talking over all of this while this is going on, while all this baptizing is going on. That's very legitimate, very possible that that's what's going on here. Regardless, um, we know that he wasn't doing the actual baptizing. His disciples were. He leaves, He says... Then in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So just a couple of things to comment on here. One, so he's got a big crowd. There's lots of people following. He's baptizing more people than John. So, of course, what does Jesus do? He leaves. This is Jesus' pattern. Every time he starts to form an army, he bails on them. He leaves. He disappoints them. He lets them down. He teaches something that chases them off. We're going to see this all through the book of John. He's developing a huge following. So, of course, he leaves. Maybe that's why he's leaving. It is purely just because because he's baptizing so many. Somebody comes to Jesus, hey, the Pharisees are mad because you're baptizing more people than John. And Jesus goes, wow, I wasn't keeping track. You're right, there's a lot of people here. Probably time to leave. Which, of course, flies in the face of everything that we... Would want from him and that they wanted of him. They wanted him to gather up the whole nation and form an army and conquer the, the Romans. So here we have, but it may be that, that the Pharisees were starting to put pressure on him. It could be that, that the word was getting around, that Jesus was too popular and the Romans were going to start gaining attention of him and Jesus wasn't ready for that. We don't really know. But this is one thing that was fun to me. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Well, if you've been reading through the book of John, Jesus has not been in Galilee yet in the book of John. And yet it says again, here, here we have the significance of the four Gospels re- revealed to us yet again. We know from the book of John that John did not write down all the stories. He actually says so. It's near the very end, so maybe a year or two before you get to read that part. But it is a, that's an important part. He's saying it again here. He departed again for Galilee. Well, John has not been to Galilee yet. Yes, he has. Read Matthew. Yes, he has. Read Mark. He's been there. I promise you, he's been there. You, I just didn't put those stories in this one, in this account so Jesus has been in Galilee, and I look forward to introducing you to Galilee. Galilee is a place that we from Tyler, Texas, can understand. It is, it is uh, especially if you live in the outskirts, you live out in the woods, you think of yourself as a country person, This is that's Galilee. Galilee is where the rednecks lived. Um, Galilee is, is where you went fishing. It was a way to make money, it was a way to, to hang out, it was a way to chill. We're going to see that in the book of John too. But if you didn't know what else to do, you went fishing. That's what you did. They they were people who worked with their hands. They were not thought of. This is flyover country. Presidents and kings didn't stop here to gain followings. Why bother? It was also by the way where zealots tended to gather. Conservative extremists tended to gather in Galilee. Sometimes they had to hide in caves and and barricade themselves. And the Romans had to come pry them out cave by cave by cave. This happened sometimes. And it's 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 a type of place that I think that that we as, as people from Tyler, many of us are going to be able to identify with this place. It's beautiful if you ever get to go. Stunning. Um, so he's going to Galilee. But in to do so, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. I'm guessing that's the correct pronunciation. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Um, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. In fact, Jewish people, especially religious Jewish people, typically did not pass through Samaria. You've probably heard this in Sunday school, that they would go around Samaria. They would take the long path, even though it took longer, rather than to go straight through at the risk of interacting with Samaritans, which they didn't want to do. The Samaritans were enemies of the Jews, as I just said. They literally tore down, tore up each other's temples. And so it's not a safe place to be. But Jesus, being Jesus, is not overly concerned with that. Um, I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But so he came there. I don't don't know if this is, does the phrase, he had to go there, imply spiritual leadership? I think it may. That Jesus is going from one part of Israel to the other, so he is led by the Spirit to go through Samaria. Regardless, that's what he does. If you want to follow up, by the way, uh, if you want to dig a little deeper, you can go to Genesis 24 and Genesis 29. This location is talked about, but it's also fascinating in that And that in this passage, what we see, what a Jewish audience sees, um, and since you're a good Jewish audience, you will notice this reference to this, this is how Isaac and Jacob are both get betrothed, is by going to a well and being greeted there by a woman. And a Jewish audience would have noticed this connection as Jesus is going to this well and is greeted there by a woman, that the roles are kind of weirdly reversed the way it plays out. But a Jewish audience would have said like, this is there's something significant is going on. There's something going on behind the scenes here. This is like a betrothal scene. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll explain why I think that's part of it. But Jacob's well was there, verse 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I've already talked about some of that. But notice this, the key part of this word, the wording here, Jesus, wearied. Um, this is a great word. What a powerful word. Um, not everyone has ever experienced Wearied, although most of the moms in the room have. It's when you're not sure where the next few minutes are coming from. It's not sure when the next, you're not sure the next hour is coming. You don't know where you're going to have the energy to still be here over the next few minutes or the next hour. You have a choice about it. You're weary and, and maybe heavy laden, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 11. But, but get to a place where we're weary. We're not sure how we have the psychological and mental or maybe physical energy to go the next step if you've done much hiking or running or, or those type of things, maybe you've experienced physical weariness. If you wrestle with depression or things like that, you, you've experienced psychological weariness. Just not sure how we're going to make it through one more step. I love that the Bible acknowledges weariness. It's the kind of thing that people, most people in the religious world don't even talk about. We don't want to talk about the idea of weary. We don't want to talk, Christians should never be weary, right? We're supposed to have our stuff all together all the time. And yet here we have the almighty son of God experiencing life as a human being. And he's weary. He's exhausted. I think there's numerous things going on here. I think he's just flat tired as part of it. He's weary. He's been walking through the desert, which is no fun. And they've come to this well. And it seems like however you get water out of this well, they didn't have it. Um, very likely that, that the well was, at, was, was, was filled with, uh, what you would bring your own rope and your own water skin that you would lower down to the water and pull back out. And they apparently didn't have that with them or something. But Jesus is sitting here at the well waiting for his disciples. And I, I, I even think there's something going on here, by the way. I think, I think Jesus is a little bit of an introvert. You've heard me say this before. I think Jesus is a little bit of an introvert. And so he's been hanging out with these guys and, and they're not relaxing people. When you read through the Gospels, is that the sense you get is that these are guys you just hang out with and there's no, like, there's no stress with these guys? Man, they're arguing with each other constantly like little children. I, I, can always, I can imagine Jesus being like, enough, y'all go in the city and get some meat. Okay, well, how, who wants to go? Who wants to go? Who's gonna go? Who's going? No, all of you, go to the city, get some meat. Well, Rabbi doesn't take all of us like, I said all of you go to the city and get some meat. Catch a hint, boys. Go away. Leave me alone. Make the voices stop. Especially little high-pitched whiny voices, right, moms? Like just, could they just get just quiet for just a few seconds? I never understood why my dad spent so much time in the bathroom when I was a kid. <laughs> now, starting to make sense, isn't it? They, but, but sometimes that, that, even that doesn't slow them down, right? They still come right there, the same voice. Jesus is like, I don't want to hear one more word about who's greatest. Not one word. Quiet. Don't make me come back there. You can imagine Jesus being like, "Get, go, all of you, go, go. Now, those of you who are introverts, you know that very often what happens is when you go finally get alone and you finally get a place to rest, you finally get a place. That's why I'm picturing Jesus here as asleep. I think Jesus would have sat down on the edge of that, that, the edge of that well. I think he'd have closed his eyes, and I think he'd have been out. Sitting there perfectly still, asleep. But what happens, introverts, when you finally get a few minutes to yourself? What happens? Someone shows up. It's it's powerful to me. If I imagine, I'm going to talk about this again. I'm going to reference this in just a second that you can imagine, by the way. Jesus, I don't think Jesus, this is one one of those situations where Jesus was going, I better go and sit at that well because that woman's coming. There are times when the Spirit gives Jesus that type of insight. I don't think this is one of them. I don't think the passage shows that. I think Jesus thought he was going to get some time to himself. I don't think he's looking at his watch going like, she's supposed to be here by now. Now, does that mean the Spirit did not lead him there and lead her there? No, no, I do think that's exactly what was happening. And I think Jesus got to be the the experience, just like we do, his experience life as a man as she comes to him and Jesus sees her coming. She sits down there and starts making noise and Jesus wakes up. And I can imagine Jesus is thinking first thing to the Father going, Father, what are you doing? Spirit, why have you brought her to me? What a, what a great picture of how stunned he must be to think the Holy Spirit loves this woman enough to bring her to the Son of God at a well in the desert. I think it's beautiful, the, the thought. And I, I think that's part of what Jesus' last words that, that we're going to get to look at today will continue next time, but his last words to her today are going to really feed into that. Jacob's, um, make sure I'm got through there. Good. And by the way, just as a side note, weary. Um, if Jesus, experiencing life as a man, a sinless man, the Son of God, if he needs to break away from the crowd, if he needs time alone, which we see him do all the time, no, take me out to the middle of the lake, no, I'm going up on the hilltop, no, no, I'm going up on the mountain, no, I'm go- leave me alone for a little while. If Jesus, the Almighty Son of God, and the ministry of his on earth needed rest, think of how much pride it indicates when we think we don't. Think of the vanity when we think, no, no, our ministry has to be constant forever. He he took breaks, sure, but he's just Jesus. I'm me. I I don't need to take breaks. Man, the vanity in that is huge. Sit down, allow yourself to be blessed by others sometimes. So the woman of Samaria came um, to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Think about this. So not only was Jesus sitting there, not only was he weary, but he had no way to get the water. When John says in John chapter 1 that the word was made flesh and came to dwell among us as one of us to experience life, of course, theologically, Jesus could have spoken water into existence, but the power of the Spirit was not leading him to perform that kind of a miracle to serve himself. He was sitting there thirsty, tired, weary, and a woman comes up, and Jesus is dependent upon her to give him water. Whenever you picture Jesus on earth, don't picture him as Almighty God just kind of hovering two inches above the earth as he kind of flowed around in his perfectly white robes all the time. That every time he hit a nail with a hammer, it went in with one shot. Every time he never stubbed his toe, he never missed a question on a Hebrew test. Jesus was experiencing life as a man. He was weary, and as flesh, he was dependent on others. To go, go get meat from town. To give me some water from the well. Sitting right here. Now again, he's not theologically dependent. He could have created whatever he wanted to create. But that wasn't the plan. The plan was for him to experience life as a man. Weary. Covered in head to toe with dust. Exhausted. Walking for miles in his early 30s in nothing but sandals across the type of ground you just saw. Of course, he's weary. He's exhausted. Having to put up with the disciples, he's exhausted. He's done. The word was truly made flesh. We don't want to undermine that. We don't want to miss that. And by the way, the Bible doesn't ever tell us if she gave him water. But I think she did right here. My opinion. As the woman, I think she hands him water. But the Samaritan woman says to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jew, of course, John's parenthetical. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans in verse 9. I love that Jesus seems so unimpressed by people's conditions. In the book of John, this is kind of a theme He's not unaware. This passage applies to every expression of racism or sexism or or whatever that we would typically have in our own hearts. I love that Jesus ignores these traditions. He's not impressed by them. We all experience it. You go somewhere and there's a, a person who's different from you. A, a, there's something different about them from you. They're a different race or different religion or whatever, and we all know the rules, we all know the the kind of the guidelines, we all know the conventions. So we don't speak to them and they don't speak to us. And it's a, we, we all have that. We all know these little cultural rules that are straight from hell. And, and Jesus, I, by the way, when you break those, don't you love it? In the name of Jesus Christ, when you initiate a conversation with someone you're not supposed to talk to by, by kind of convention, but you do anyway in the name of Jesus, isn't it, isn't it kind of fun to spit on these conventions that the world throws at us and tells us it's supposed to be like this? I love it. I love getting the chance to do that kind of stuff. You would have been proud of your staff as we went on a a retreat this this week Um, and we went to Dallas and we did all types of different little adventure activities and learning and meetings and all types of different things like that to, to bond us as a staff. But I will tell you, one of the things that you would be proud of is everywhere we went, someone was engaging with someone in the name of Jesus in an exceptional way. By the end of uh, by the end of, uh, of, of meals, we not only knew the name of the waiter or waitress, but we knew their prayer requests. We knew where they were from. Someone seemed to interact with somebody every time. Um, the guy who guided us through a painting exercise together at the end, a guy named Jamie, who got to hear us talk about these passages, stopped me as I was leaving. I was like, "Hey, um, you know, my dad died just a few weeks ago." And I mean, we were trying to leave, but he had a, Jamie had a story to tell that he was telling a total stranger because he had seen how we interacted with each other. And so fortunately, one of the group of people we met with was uh, the staff of another church. And so we were able to tell all these people, like, listen, you need to go visit this church. You need to get to know this pastor, Wayne Broderick, who's been here and he's preached before. We went and played them in Ultimate Frisbee and had lunch with them and hang out with them just to get some time with them. And, uh, man, it's a beautiful thing. You, you sit down with someone who's a total, complete stranger over, uh, over lunch, but, but you both know Different denominations, some of them different racial backgrounds, some of whatever. And we sit down and would and, and talk. And how long does it take before in a situation like that, how, many, how long before the bond of, of Christ is there? Seconds. It's so cool to break these conventions. Let me encourage you in the name of Jesus Christ to sometimes break these conventions. You know that the person at the gas station, you're not supposed to talk to them and ask them how their day was or ask if you can pray for them. I'd love for us to be known as a church full of people who ask total strangers how we can pray for them and then pray for them. It's one of the few things that is almost never offensive to somebody is to offer to pray for them. It's, it, you, I, I, that's part of why I had David Smalley here that night, that the atheist was to, was to show, hey, David, can we pray for you? Of course, here you have a nationally known atheist podcaster saying, sure, you can pray for me. Like, right, because even for you, that's not offensive. So it's, a, it's, a, it's just cool. Jesus seems not to be ignorant of their condition, but ambivalent. He doesn't really care. He's going to run into thirsty people and starving people. And he's going to run into paralyzed people and sick people and dead people. And he's still not concerned about their condition. He knows it. He's aware of it. He cares. He's not stymied by it at all. I love that with this. And Jesus answered to her, oh, phew. I'm picturing him now with just enough of his lips wet from the cup of water that she's given him from her bag. Esther is still caked with dust as he says, Oh, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, meaning you would have asked me and he would have given you living water. Now he's going to unpack this for us over next week. We're going to look at it in detail. If you understood the gift sitting there, if you just understood who you were even talking to, this is when I think he's in awe of the fact that the Holy Spirit has brought this woman to, to him at this time. The Holy Spirit has brought this woman of all people and revealed to Jesus who she is and said, I'm, this is an appointment for you. And who is she meeting with? She's wandered out in the desert, this unloved, unwanted person who is totally an outcast from her society, and she randomly comes across the almighty son of God, the Messiah for mankind. And she gets to have a conversation with him in the desert by a well, and she has no clue the irony in this story is beautiful as you, as you realize there's a, there's a dramatic irony going on here that you know what's going on and she has no idea Psalm 63 1 says oh God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water we do we see it that way or do we think we've got all these other wells to drink from too? I've got the well of my investments and I've got the well of my work and I've, I've got the well of, of family and I've got all these different things that they're independent good wells with clean water. No, they're, they're dry. You've heard me say before, it's why I believe the age and gender risk for suicide most years, the number one is men age 65 to 80. Because they've finally gotten down to the bottom of the well and there's still nothing there. They get all the way down to the bottom and it's dry, 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 dry. And they fought and fought and fought and fought and fought, and fought to get to the bottom and it's dry. And now it's too late to switch wells in their mind. Now Jesus is going to expound on this further as we go through it um, for sure. I'm going to jump down to John 3. Remember this passage from last week, uh, read from uh Connected to it this morning, John 3, 33 and 34, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Already we're having, going to have that defied. There is one woman who's going to hear this testimony. A lot of people are going to hear hers. Whoever does receive this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Here Jesus is going to hear, going to share his testimony And a woman is going to hear it, and she's going to receive it, and the Spirit will lead her to her life to be changed. And then she's going to change the life of many others purely because she's willing to believe. Listen, she is willing to believe. Part of believing is submitting, accepting. Jesus is who He says He is. Do we do that? Do we accept Him? We say we do. Do we accept His definition of marriage? I'm not talking about politically, by the way. I mean, that'd be fine. I'm talking about in our marriages. Does he get to decide what a marriage looks like or do we get to decide that? Does he get to decide this stuff or do we get to decide it? We go, no, 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 I'm going to go to this well. This well will be, this well will be good. I'll find, I'll find comfort what I'm looking for in this well. Yes, g- good luck with that. Spending your life frantically moving from well to well, trying to find what it is that you've defined as success. Versus saying, but what about what God has defined as success? Are we willing to throw that away? He gives the Spirit without measure, without prejudice. It is bottomless, but we don't believe Him. The well He has for us is bottomless. The the water, the spring just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. We don't buy that. We don't want to do it His way. And then we go, oh no, Jesus, you said my life would be full of living water, but I'm over here at this well and there's no water in it. What's the problem? Wrong well. You're trying, to, you're trying to find what you want in your well, in this well over here, but instead going and believing in him and letting his water come through us. There's no bottom to his, the basket. We can dig down. We can dive in. This is the idea of abundant life, not just life, abundant life. But we have to engage with it his way. We've got to submit ourselves to him. That's what it comes down to. But we don't like submitting. We like being our own God's. We like deciding what we want and deciding what we should do and deciding that kind of stuff. And, and this is the, that's the warning to us, uh-huh. But see, if you nearly knew who I was, you'd be asking me for what I have. Stop telling me what you have. You'd want to know what I have. You think you get it, but you don't. Obviously, as we sang that song, as John mentioned, the idea of reckless here doesn't mean that, that God didn't know what it would cost him. But what a beautiful picture and a thought that knowing what it would cost him, knowing what it would cost him, he paid it. The language—it's—he's it's, easy with his resources. There's no bottom. Pressed down, overflowing like a spring that keeps giving. I'm going to talk more about this next week. But we have a spring on this property, which is part of where we get the name South Spring. I'll retell that story probably next week or the next one. But. I'm um, a spring on the property over here, and a few years ago when it was dry and everything was drying out. If you didn't have pot water pumping into it, it was drying out. Not that not this spring. It had water in it. It's not a very pretty spring. Not yet. Out there in the woods, it just sits there, but it's it's always got water in it. It never runs dry. So I want to end on this thought. So in Israel we went one of the places we went, the first time I went, I was so caught off guard by this, but and I totally fell for this. Um, we went to a place called Eingedi, and and we went we walked a long way through the desert where it's na- I mean it's nasty, it is desert, um, it's in the similar region, and so we go through all these all this path and you go up on the heat where you're being just kind of cooked alive and that's in, in June and it was it was bad we were in there in November or March and it was still bad and and so we, we go down this little path to where this this little dry riverbed where the little bit of water runs through it because there's a spring at the at the head of Eingedi. And so we go there. Um, it's one of my favorite places. It always reminds me of Ginger. I always uh, bring her something back from Aingeti, a rock or, or water or something like that, um, because um, Solomon and his wife in, in Song of Solomon compare each other to Aingeti, in a desert land where everything else is dry. There's one place where I can go and I can be okay with you. It's a beautiful picture. God is often related to Aingeti as well. Here you have. He gets there and he says, um, he explains how for the Jew, living water is water that comes from the stone especially that's moving. And so he said, here you are, here we are, there's a waterfall coming down into this place in the middle of a desert, a waterfall coming down into this kind of basin that's you know, 20 or 30 feet around and there's water there. And, and, um, and so he stands there and he goes, so this, he teaches through living water. This is living water for the Jewish person. It's water that moves, it's water that changes, it's water that, that feeds us and fills us, the water that is life. And, and we get, I'm gonna talk more about this next week, but he says, um, he says so, so come check out this water And so every one of us, we start like taking our shoes off, taking a shoe off and you go down next to it and every one of us were dipping our feet down in the water and some people were laying down their hands and feet and hands and knees and putting their hands down in the water to feel how cool the water was and everything. And he says, that's the problem. I just showed you living water and you want to dip your toe in it. And without another word, he turns and does this. And just dives head first into this, fully clothed, dives head first into this pool of water. Drench, comes up, drenching head to toe and says, who's going to join me? Why do we do that? God has this good thing for us, this living water. And we're like, oh good, that'll be great for a couple hours on Sunday morning every week. Or one week and six. That'll be great. If this is living water, if this is the water that we need for life, please let me encourage you. Take all of the junk that you've got stacked up everywhere else and throw it in and let it sink to the bottom. Your own opinion on how things should be, your measure of success for all these different things need to go there and let it sink to the bottom and go away. Let him sweep that away in a flood. So only the things that that survive in the water, the living water is what he has for us. So much of this is about the willingness to risk it all in order to get in where He has us. This is the living water. If you knew Him, if you knew the gift of God, you wouldn't be coming to Him with demands. You wouldn't be coming to Him with a list of things for Him to jump through. You'd be coming to Him and saying, what do you have for me? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the good gift of Your Son and the Spirit that You give us without measure that you just keep pouring him out with us. And Lord, that you, because of the spirit living in us, we then become like a spring of life. That we don't have time to make demands. We've got too many people out there dying of thirst. I pray that we will be like a refreshing thing. I pray that when people come to this place, they experience a refreshment, a welcoming, a hospitality like no place else. That when we, when we go out into the world, that people engage with us and their lives are better because they met us. That our marriages, as we struggle through the hard things and we sacrifice and submit our own standards for perfection instead, that we say, no, no, what is is your standard for sacrifice? That with our parenting, that instead of demanding our kids have this behavioral modification that we pour into them the very best we can to see their hearts change and follow you. And God, as it comes to sacrificing and serving you, that you give us opportunities to say, how do I go and serve you and see what you have for me. Father, we come to you looking for that abundant life, more than just survival, but life. You offer it to us, Lord, and I pray that we will respond however we need to today to take, drink a little more deeply of the goodness of the life you offer. And I pray this in your son's awesome name, amen.